Tune in weekly and listen to the Collateral Damage podcast, where Michael Wilson and Maureen Kavanaugh host a variety of special guests to discuss topics and available services that will help you learn about the impact that substance use has on our lives, our families, and on our communities nationwide. Episodes and listening information can be found at www.cdpodcast.com. You can also search for Collateral Damage Podcast on your favorite listening platforms or watch previous and future episodes on YouTube. Don't forget to subscribe and share. All right, welcome everybody to another episode of Collateral Damage. This is Mike Wilson here with my co-host Maureen Cavanaugh. How you doing, Maureen? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. And we have a special guest here today, Ali Hunter, um, who is the executive director of PARI. And PARI is the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative that uh, I believe was started in Gloucester. Is that right, Ali? That's right. Thanks for having me today. Oh, we're happy to have you. And I'm, I'm really curious to hear more about kind of the inception of this program and, and what what sparked it, which I mean, I'm from, I'm from the North Shore, I'm from Beverly, so I kind of mm-hmm. know what sparked it, but our listeners probably don't. And, um, you know, maybe more about what you've been able to do since you've stepped in as executive director, director back in uh, 2016. Yep, that that's right? right. Yep. Okay. So maybe you could help our listeners understand a little bit about what PARI is first, and then talk about where you've taken it today. Sure. Um, Again, thank you for having me today and for the opportunity to highlight what we do. Um, So PARI is a nonprofit organization that was started in June 2015 alongside the Gloucester Angel program. So um, in 2015, Gloucester, Massachusetts, it's a small fishing community about an hour north of Boston. Um, They had a series of fatal overdoses and really the town felt like they could do more and they should do more to respond. So the former chief of police, the mayor, and some other community leaders got together and came up with the idea that, um, that, that the police department would actually be a location where people could walk in and ask for help with their substance use disorder, mm-hmm. regardless of where they lived or what their drug of choice was or what insurance they had, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, they could walk into the station. And um, officers and volunteers were trained to do an intake process and help them get treatment on demand. So, you know, it's a pretty simple idea, just the idea of walking into a police station, but it was also pretty significant and changing the way that both police and, you know, the mainstream community approached addiction and really reframed addiction as a disease instead of a crime and recognized that people need treatment, not arrest, not jail. And it it really did kind of change the conversation about how law enforcement could be involved in this Mm -hmm. and respond to this in a more proactive, compassionate way. Um, So yeah, so this, like I said, was kind of simple, but revolutionary at the same time. And pretty much- What year was that, Allie? It was June, 2015. 2015, okay. 2015. So I I remember when it happened. I I remember when it started. Yeah. And I I, I mean, you know, you you talk about it now because so much has happened because that happened. Yes, yes. You talk about it now and it doesn't seem like as big of a deal. But I, I remember when that first happened and the idea that you could go, you're going to purposely go into the police department with, and you could bring your drugs and give it to them and then they would get rid of it and they would take you to treatment was just mind blowing. You right. know, it, it was like, well, and then we're going to send you to Mars for treatment. That's about <laughs> how, you know, so this was, this was huge and, right. big and, and, and shook everything and everything we thought about in law enforcement and and addiction up i think 
Yeah, I think it did change the game in a lot of ways. And it, it kind of introduced this new tool that officers could have in their toolkit. I think before, a lot of law enforcement officers were frustrated that they didn't know how to support their community members that were struggling. And they kept going to funerals and they kept seeing the problem, but didn't have a way to be involved in a solution. Right. So this really did kind of change the way that police interacted with communities and the way they were involved in this issue and the way they police in general. Um, but you're right, I mean, looking at it now, it seems almost like something you take for granted, the phrase that, you know, right. we, can't, we can't arrest our way out of it. That's something you didn't hear 10 years ago and is almost mm -hmm. commonplace now. But it, that Gloucester starting the program really did start something new. It sparked a movement. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and so, I, yeah. I, I yeah. think it was just this great combination between the uh, law enforcement and the mayor, too, because mm -hmm. the mayor is a force to be reckoned with. And she decided <laughs> something's going to happen and it's going to happen there. Yeah, she well, did. I, I remember. Yeah. Yeah, I remember reading stories about the, uh, you know, both sides of this, both the individuals, you know, because as an addict in recovery myself, you know, the idea of walking into a police station <laughs> and asking, you know, telling them, A, that you've been using drugs and that you need help has always been met with a traditional police response of, you know, not necessarily what you guys had started. And so there was a shift for people like us to get comfortable enough to walk through the door and ask for help and right. the fear that we were gonna be held accountable or end up in jail for something that we did or that it, it wasn't what everybody says it was. And then I imagine for the police department, you know, the police officers themselves, uh, you know, to also shift their perspective of seeing these folks as, you know, criminals who are involved in the drug lifestyle and, you know, drug addicts and, and individuals that are struggling with substance use disorder who are only only trying to survive in their illness and that right. it's a symptom of their illness and that they need treatment instead. Like what a, what a drastic shift for both sides. Yeah. Right. And, and you know, it was it was those small success stories in the beginning of someone that went through it and was like, and I got well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I think yeah. when we started, it was sort of like people didn't know if anyone would do it. You know, they didn't know if anyone would walk in. Um, but, you know, sure enough, actually, the first person who participated, he flew from California to mm -hmm. participate in the program, which I think Amazing. it really highlights how um, how difficult it is to navigate the treatment system for somebody yes. to take that extreme of a measure to fly across the country to walk into a police station. Um, and I think that was a really common experience that we heard mm -hmm. from people and that we um, in the first study that we did with Boston University School of Public Health, um, there was a piece actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And one of the very common things that participants shared is that their experience seeking help in the past was very negative mm -hmm. and that they felt like this would be different for whatever reason they felt that um, and they actually shared that the police that they interacted with treated with them with more compassion and more respect and less shame and less blame than wow. they had experienced from healthcare settings when they were seeking help in the past so the idea that and then also the police were very successful at this. So 95% of people who walked into the police station got treatment on demand mm -hmm. that day. And again, that's more success than a lot of healthcare systems had experienced. So, well, you know, can, police, I, can I ask, can I yeah. ask you a quick question about that? Yeah, because, of course. You know, I think, I think the success of this program, based on my understanding, it, it kind of hinges on the, the relationships that have been built with PARI and treatment programs in the area, that a majority of these beds are, they're donated, they are scholarship, they are available for free to the police department to use at their discretion in this ANGEL program. Is that correct? So when we started, there was a lot of, of reliance on a few treatment centers, a few, in most cases, the person walking into the station had recently used and did need to medically detox. And so there were a small number of treatment providers that basically 
you know, we had the cell phone number of who was doing intakes, they agreed to provide scholarships, and they kind of got on board with this concept that whatever the barrier was, we would eliminate it. So if the barrier was money or insurance, you know, they would provide a scholarship. If the barrier was transportation, we had a contract with an ambulance company, and they would provide transportation. So it was really just about whatever the barrier is that's getting that person who's walking into a police station because they're very willing mm-hmm. to have that window of clarity and opportunity, anything that's standing in their way at that point, we want to get rid of it. So when we did, when we started, it was very reliant on a small, um, small handful of treatment providers that um, provided scholarships and ad- agreed to do 24 seven intakes, because again, mm-hmm. that's a, that's a shift from business oh, yeah. as usual as well. Um, and I think as we've grown and expanded to be this nationwide organization, our approach has shifted a bit because now we're essentially teaching police departments how to do this on their own. So mm-hmm. we're teaching them how to build relationships with treatment providers, how to understand the continuum of care, and how to build those relationships that will allow them to be successful in their own communities, in their own states. Because, you know, it's not really possible for PARI to kind of centrally manage Mm-hmm. you know, what's the best treatment available in, in Kentucky. That's, so we're really trying to provide the tools to each department to, to take this on. Um, but yeah, certainly at the beginning, we had some real great partners that the success hinged on. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure it's evolved and developed into something new and better, but it's, uh, I mean, I imagine there's so much gratitude to those programs that helped Absolutely. you get it off the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, like we're talking about, this was something brand new, you know, this is not something that there was a template to follow. We were mm-hmm. really just trying to figure it out and do Pioneers. our best. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so yeah, it certainly has evolved, but I think the spirit is still there of just police are in this unique position to provide access to care. And a lot of our partners now, our law enforcement partners have this model where you can walk into the station, but a lot of them have another model as well, but it still is based on the idea that police have that front row seat and that, you know, the police station maybe is one of the few places in the community that's open 24 hours a day. And it's just sort of utilizing that role in, in a positive way. Now, this must take some pressure off of the emergency room, too, because, I mean, that was the go-to for years was like it, no matter what day, of time of day or night, if that's what you're experiencing, you go to the ER and you've got yeah. overwhelmed staff there um, yep. you know, that find it difficult to, to meet the needs. Yeah, I think right. so. Yeah, so both in Gloucester and now, you know, beyond Gloucester, the idea is that through community policing and through approaches like this, both intake models where you walk in and outreach models where somebody maybe receives a visit at their home, um, they take pressure off emergency services, they take pressure off the criminal justice system, and they're getting people help at the community level, hopefully mm-hmm. before a crisis happens, before you know addiction-driven crime happens. And it, it's really kind of steering people in a good path and starting their recovery before maybe it's at that point of crisis. Okay, let me ask you a question about the, the process itself. So yeah. um, some of our listeners, myself included, have walked into a police station before. I've been brought into a police station in a variety of different ways, but let's say that I walked into <laughs> one, right? Yeah. Um, you know, my experience is usually, you know, I'm in Beverly, so I'm met with some, you know, tinted bulletproof glass and a, a white room with some some pamphlets on the wall. It's not very inviting. It's not very beautiful. (laughs) Uh, It's very functional though. And so, you know, for the individual who's saying, okay, maybe this is something I need to do because I've lost all hope. I'm out of options or a family member is listening and they're like, this is where they need to go. Could you kind of break down for me what the experience of an individual walking in full of fear and anxiety and, you know, crippling addiction, 
might face um, in a police department that's uh, running the Police Assisted Addiction Recovery Initiative? Yeah, so like I kind of said a little bit, each model is a bit different. So when, when a police department joins PARI and becomes a member of PARI, we assist them in program development and starting a program that will work in their community. So there is a lot of variation. It's very tailored to the local situation. And mm -hmm. as, as most people know, each police department is a bit different. Each physical station is a little bit different. So there's not quite a universal experience of what would happen when you walk in. Um, so I'll generalize a little bit, um, but if a department had a program that had a walk-in model, because again, not every participating police department has a walk-in model. Some are more of an outreach model. But if you were to walk into a station that has a, a program where you can walk in, um, again, procedures would vary just a little bit, but somebody would greet you. Um, it might be you know, that you have to pick up a phone in the lobby and you have to call someone who's going to come out and greet you. It might be that you interact with a human face-to-face -face at that moment. There's some different things, you know, that mm -hmm. th that could be a, um, a variation there. But somebody's going to greet you. And, and the idea is that that person is going to be familiar with the program. They're going to use non-stigmatizing language and they're going to kind of point you in the right direction of who's going to be doing the intake process and getting you kind mm -hmm. of the services or the treatment that you need. So in some cases, what will happen is an officer themselves who's been trained will kind of do that intake process and walk through it with you. So for mm. example, in Gloucester, it could be a shift commander or a watch commander. Wow. Um, that could be the person. In other departments, they've chosen to have it be um, detectives or some designated role, maybe officers that have been trained with the crisis intervention training and mental mm. health. Yeah. So it could be an officer themselves. In other cases, um, you will be greeted by a volunteer or a staff person who's embedded with the police department. Like a recovery coach? It could be a recovery coach. It could be a clinician. It could be a social worker. Okay. And that's sort of depending on the department and what, um, what they have access to, who their partners are, um, what staff are part of their team. So in Gloucester, for example, in most cases, you would have a recovery coach come meet you. Um, and that recovery coach would work through what your goals are, what your needs are, and how to get you on the path that you know, you're interested in. Um, you know, do a bit of an intake process. If it, if it seems like you need further assessment, they would facilitate that. Um, but you'd have somebody who's your go-to person to help you get the treatment or the services that you need. Um, and then in most cases, they would stay in touch with you. So they might, mm -hmm. they might actually bring you to that treatment center, provide transportation themselves, or wow. connect you with an ambulance service, or in some cases, even like an Uber or something like that. Um, I'd love, I'd love the first class blue light ride. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, sometimes that's, that's what, what's available. And yeah. um, so they would kind of get you, get you to the door of the treatment that um, is the right fit for you. Mm -hmm. um, and then usually they would stay in touch with you as well. So we know that just getting into detox is, is not enough, um, right. that you need to continue um, getting services and long-term treatment, medication-assisted treatment are all really important options if they're the right fit for that patient. So mm -hmm. usually the recovery coach or the clinician, or like I said, maybe even the officer, they would stay in touch with you to help you make those transitions, navigate it, keep you motivated, and mm -hmm. just be available if you need additional support. No. Now, as a, so I'm a professional in the field. I know Maureen is as well. And, and so, you know, we are referring professionals. So we're constantly yeah. being met with these individuals that, um, you know, may not have any options, the people who may be walking through the front door. You know, as a referring professional, should we be considering, um, you know, our local police department as a resource? Yeah, I think that in a way that this is a police referral program, that mm -hmm. somebody walks into a station or somebody is, um, you know, 
gets an outreach visit or gets some type of an outreach opportunity after an overdose or mm -hmm. at the community level, just even on the street maybe, um, and police are making referrals to treatment providers. So each of the participating police departments, the more partnerships they have, the more aware they are of not only treatment, but other recovery support services, the more connections they have, the more knowledge they have, the better they'll be able to support and assist the individual who comes in their contact. Wow. Yeah, so if you're, if someone who's listening is representing a treatment provider or, you know, housing or, you know, an employment program or anything that kind of would be a service that somebody might need in early recovery, I would encourage them to reach out to their local police department if they have a program so that the department is familiar with their services. Now, what, about, idea. what about the family services? Because I know, Maureen, you do uh, a lot of coaching with families. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, I guess that's the type of thing that, you know, it's, it's I, I can't stress how important it is to get the individual to placement, especially if they're the one that were brave enough to walk through the door of a police department and ask for yeah. help. But, you know, if you've got this unique opportunity where you can say, in addition to the screening, so what about your family? You know, would they be willing to talk to somebody as well? Is there a are there are those networks being built as well, like for folks like Maureen, who, you know, might be able to assist or work with the family while their loved one is, you know, pushing their way through placement? Yeah, definitely. And I, I, I agree that working with the family is so important. I'm also, you know, have family members who have been impacted by this issue. And, um, you know, like I said, it, it varies a lot department to department, but most police departments that I'm familiar with do have something available for families as well. Again, um, they're really trying to leverage the services that exist in the community. Mm -hmm. um, so for example, we have strong partnerships in Plymouth County, Massachusetts. If um, anybody has a non-fatal overdose or even a fatal overdose in Plymouth County, um, a team follows up with them and provides them um, you know, information and if, if they'd like um, support services and referrals. So groups like Maureen's group and Learn to Cope and um, different family support groups, in some cases, a police department starts their own family support group. And so um, okay. police definitely are trying to spread information about the opportunities that exist in the community and in some cases fill gaps if there yeah. are gaps. Yeah. Um, I'd say with the Gloucester program and with a lot of the other walk-in programs across the country, it's pretty common for a family member to come with the person, to walk in with the person and to be there, to have some level of family involvement. Hmm. Um, and so for me, I remember maybe even my first week on the job when I was hired in 2016 as PARI's first executive director, um, there was a family that walked in and it was a kind of a young man who was looking for help for himself, but his sister was there with him. And I remember really connecting with the sister and you know, not just providing information, but also trying to provide hope for her um, yeah. that this is, you know, this is something that she can get through. And she had never heard of some of the programs that I mentioned. And honestly, for me, ten years ago, I had never heard of those programs. And it can be really isolating for family members as well. So mm -hmm. I think that police try to, you know, support the individual with the substance use disorder, but also anybody else in their life. And um, departments really, I've seen them really recognize how important that community is and their own self-care is as well. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I guess the, um, you know, the, the, the family element of this is, is how, how then does the family get involved in the treatment? Like if the, mm -hmm. you know, when I work with a family and we place them, you know, we do the research in advance, the family knows where they're going, they understand the plan, they know that coming home is probably not the best option and so on and so forth. Um, I have a better question. All right. So, so 
I'm in recovery myself. And mm-hmm. in my addiction, I went down some pretty dark paths, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up in jail. I've, I've been through quite a bit. This is my hometown. I caused my mess here. I cleaned it up here. And in cleaning it up here, I built up a relationship and joined uh, the early in my sobriety. It was called the, uh, the Mayor's Drug Task Force. It was like mm-hmm. Beverly Substance Abuse Prevention Coalition, some big chunky name that nobody yep. could really get out of their <laughs> mouth. And um, I joined it and, you know, I was the, like the addict, I don't know, the token addict in the yep. room, you know, that they were like, so what do you think, Mike? I'm like, oh, drugs are bad. <laughs> and, you know, and, but as time went on, you know, I became the co-chair of that committee, which had evolved into something else. And it involved the police department. And now it was the community advisory committee for the, poli- the Beverly Police Department. And, you know, it, I would show up at, um, events, cookouts, and stuff like that. I would see officers who were on that committee with me out and about. I mean, we're talking about years into recovery of me doing well, me participating in my community, trying to add to my community. And we still ended up, um, you know, whenever I went to shake a police officer's hand, both looking at each other extremely uncomfortably, uh, because in my mind, a cop is always a cop. And in his mind, a criminal is always a criminal. And like, I know that that exists, whether we talk about it or not. And how, how how have you guys faced that police department to police department culture, you know, the, the culture yeah. of that, that like, you know, is there, I hate to say this because I don't want to imply that they are insensitive, but is there like an addiction sensitivity training that they have to go through? Is there a culture shift that's happened over the last five or 10 years in the police department that's allowed them to do that? Because I, I mean, I can't say it doesn't exist because I know it does. I've seen it. I felt yeah. it. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, it's an important question. And I think PARI and what we're doing and um, how we're supporting police departments is supporting a culture change. And the whole reason why and how we're growing is because of that culture change and that paradigm shift in policing. Um, And I think a lot of it that I've seen getting to know officers, again, from all across the country, is that, um, you know, a lot of them also have been impacted by this. You know, they have many police departments who join PARI and start a program, their reason for joining is because it hit close to the department. You know, maybe Mm -hmm. someone in the department's sibling or child or niece or nephew or someone um, was personally impacted by it. And that Mm -hmm. was able to kind of humanize it in a different way um, and to shift the way that police think about this issue. Um, and to just make it feel more like that could be my daughter, that could be my sibling, because in a lot of cases it is, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. to a point where it is. Um, so a lot of what we do is both formal and informal. And um, like, so for example, departments that join PARI, we um, do, you know, a bit of an onboarding process where we help them with program development. And we talk about things like stigma and language and, you know, we're an ally in helping them figure that out. It's not so much about pointing out the flaws, but building on the spirit of why they reached out to us. Because every police department that's part of PARI, they reached out to us because they wanted to change the way they do this. And mm-hmm. so we're building on their strengths and trying to help them achieve what they're looking to achieve um, and create the culture change that they want to create. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of it has happened organically as well. Um, one of the programs that we have that's operating in Massachusetts and now um, in several other states as well is a partnership with AmeriCorps where we actually have national service members embedded in police departments and they're either doing um, work as recovery coaching or as, um, as VISTAs, which focus on capacity building and program development. Um, about 90% of those service members are in recovery. 
And in some cases, they are individuals who had been previously arrested by the place that they're now serving in. Um, and so <laughs> you can imagine- That's the relationship I was talking about. Exactly, yeah, so fun. you could imagine maybe at the beginning, there's some hesitation or there's some uncertainty about how to interact or what each of the roles are and how it will work. But over time, you know, those relationships become so strong and so rich because you have those moments where you're just developing like a true mm -hmm. friendship almost, or, you know, a professional working yeah, relationship. You see each other, see each other as people. Other, right, beings, you see yeah. each other as people. Yeah. And one of the really amazing things that happens is not only, you know, both sides change where the person who's in recovery thinks about law enforcement differently. The person who's sitting, you know, with the badge, they think about, you know, what what's different with their recovery community or what their stereotypes about someone who uses drugs, how are those different? Right. And it's actually, it becomes quite a deep bond in a lot of cases where the recovery coach becomes the person that officers go to when they need help with themselves or their family. Like they right. trust that person that much that they're willing to go to them and confide in them. And, you know, these are recovery coaches. They have keys to the police departments. They have access to police reports. Mm -hmm. um, and they're really seen as an asset. And it's changing a lot. Like I said, it's changing the culture a lot because officers really rely on them and really value their lived experience. Mm -hmm. And um, it just kind of organically breaks down some of those notions about, you know, how, how it traditionally might have been looked at. So it's well, pretty is, cool to see that. You know, it's pretty you know, amazing I, to see that. Yeah. I think that even though I do believe that there's been a cultural shift. I mean, there has to have been. There's too many people that know that, you know, have a close family member, a child or or brother or sister that have been affected by this. And, um, you know, as time goes on, it'll be all, you know, the new police recruits will be, it'll be full of uh, police officers that have had close friends and, mm -hmm. and family members that have been involved in this. But I, and I know from working directly with uh, police department and setting up something, Perry, like um, it, it, our, our, the door knock program in the town that I used to live in and still continuing to work with that. And also working with the Department of Corrections and drug courts with, um, with Magnolia. I have seen people with a lot of really wonderful intentions um, slide back into those same old thought patterns because of compassion fatigue and because of because i mean they're not healthcare providers they were they're supposed to be law enforcement officers and although i appreciate everything you know i appreciate all of this are we doing anything to take care of them because i don't think that this is something that a lot of them knew they were signing up for especially the older officers you know and it's not to say that they don't want to see it happen and that they don't believe in it but i don't know if a lot of them, and I've, I've spoken to large police departments and I've gotten the feedback, this, this to be true, that, you know, as much as they want to help when they see the same person coming back and back and back, and we know that that happens sometimes and then they get well and then they don't come back anymore if you, mm -hmm. if you support them properly. But to watch that, Oh, I hope that, you know, there's something out there where we're helping them with that compassion fatigue and, and keeping them from burning out on, on, on that particular part of their job. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. And I think I, I see it a couple different ways. Kind of, I think before departments had a program like this or had a strategy like this, they were more likely to have compassion fatigue because they did not have the right tool in their toolkit to really help mm -hmm. people in a meaningful way. And so it's frustrating, for example, to kind of keep responding to calls for service that relate to the same person and to feel like it's a revolving door and to only see somebody when they're at their worst. And, you know, at this point, officers, they don't see people when they're at their best. You know, they might not know that person. I right. Narcan 10 times 
then now they're actually doing great. They, they don't get to ever see that success story that they were part of in some way. And they didn't have maybe the appropriate tool to really help and get at the root cause of the issue before. And now, now they do, now they can. So I do think that that's helping having a better tool. Um, and, you know, I think any job like this can be emotionally taxing um, because you get personally invested in it and you want to do everything you can for somebody. Um, but what I've heard from a lot of officers is that actually this helps them feel like their job is more satisfying. That, mm -hmm. you know, before when they were just arresting people or when they were doing nothing, that was quite dissatisfying. Um, and that now they feel like really they became a police officer to help people. Now they're truly helping people. And so a lot of officers share that they feel more job satisfaction. They feel like their community interactions are better. There's more trust of law enforcement. Law enforcement are regarded differently and, and better. Mm -hmm. um, and it's actually helped kind of reinvigorate their um, their kind of interest in, in the That's field. That's good to hear. Yeah. Is so there it, yeah. Is there any requirement that the officers that participate in this carry Narcan? Because I know that that's been kind of, um, not all police departments will allow their officers to carry Narcan. It's getting better, but um, I, I know that that's sometimes uh, um, an issue. Are you also trying to get, trying to make it so that all police officers will carry Narcan? So access to Narcan and increasing access to Narcan is a huge priority for PARI. Um, when I started in 2016, one of the first initiatives that I helped roll out was actually kind of distributing Narcan that was donated to us by Adapt Pharma and Emergent. Um, they donated 10,000 doses. Um, and so we got that out to police departments across the country. And many of those departments were not carrying Narcan until we provided it to them. Um, so that was huge. And, you know, for us, it was really um, a way to get them on board because we were providing them with something very tangible and eliminating. That's like the, you know what, that's like, a, you, you just said another thing. That's like, if you stand back and look, that's 10,000 people. Right. I mean, I'm yeah. sure those, they probably were all used at some point, those doses on Arcan. Right. And, and they, right. It, it's just, it's a little mind blowing to think about. It's yeah. true. Um, right. It, it's significant that departments, a lot of departments were not carrying Narcan and, and then they were. And then they kind of changed the way they approached this issue because now they had that tool to do so. Right. Um, so, you know, we've done a lot of other initiatives, um, again, being from Gloucester, it's a fishing community. We've also tried to increase access to Narcan with the fishing community. We've recently done some partnerships with the construction industry. Both of those industries have been really hit hard by this because they're more likely to get injured on, um, on the job, more likely to be prescribed opioids, less likely to have access to, you know, paid time off and, you know, if you, if you overdose out on the boat, you know, it's, it's almost certain to be fatal if there's not Narcan on board. So we, we are huge about increasing access to Narcan. Um, but to kind of circle back to your original point, we don't require departments to carry Narcan. Well, Our to to, to, to yeah. that point, let me, let me ask you yeah. a question. Yeah. What, what would be a reason to not do it? To not carry Narcan? Yeah. Like, I, I mean, I know you just said, you just gave the yeah. answer, which was <laughs> that it's not required. That was going to be my yeah. first question. Yeah. And then, so like i don't know have you had to listen to one of these responses where it's usually a union thing it? it's usually i i think it's usually a union thing right it's not yeah so i i have had to listen to a bit of why not um my general approach and pari's general approach is to meet law enforcement where they're at and to build on what they want to do mm -hmm. and to take baby steps if that's what that means so mm -hmm. if they are not interested in carrying narcan but they are interested in following up after overdoses, then let's start with that and let's build on that. And once we have a trusting working relationship, 
I can bring that up again. Um, yep. So it's really trying to meet them where they're at and not force um, a strategy are, on them because it what really. Are, what are some of the excuses that you hear, though? I guess that's what I'm wondering. Yeah. You don't have to give me any specifics. No. <laughs> but like I just like I can't yeah. figure out what I would say if I didn't want it, other than something terrible or mean. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in some cases, um, like Maureen said, there are um, there are complications with unions where this is maybe something that um, law enforcement did not originally sign up to do. So it's a, it's a new Out, responsibility. Job. Yeah. It's a new mm. responsibility. And that opens up room for maybe a negotiation of gotcha. what additional benefits or compensation they might need for taking on this new responsibility. Um, honestly, I feel like most of the time there's self-imposed barriers. They're not true barriers. And a lot of it does relate to the stigma of this disease as opposed to other diseases. Um, but I think we really try to come at it from a non-judgmental perspective. And like I said, kind of build on where we do have common ground. Um, I think, like I said, when we were providing it for free, that eliminated a lot of the potential barriers. Right. Um, so, you know, if there was, for example, you know, they were having a hard time fitting it into their budget, or there was someone that had a problem with it. If you, if it's mm -hmm. free, it's harder to have a problem with it. Right. Um, if, if it's donated. So that helped eliminate a lot of the barriers. Um, you know, in some cases, the motivation for carrying it was, um, something other than just deploying it to community members who were overdosing. Like for mm -hmm. example, um, there were a lot of officers at a couple years ago that were worried about accidental exposure for law enforcement themselves right. or even accidental exposure of canines mm -hmm. and things like that might have been why they started carrying Narcan. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was sort of like, okay, like if that's why you want to do it, I'm, I'm happy you want to do it. Um, just, just use it when the time is right. Exactly. Yep. So I think, like I said, it's kind of the approach that we want to help be a, an ally and a support to police you know, as we work with them, we're able to help, um, you know, in, insert different ideas and suggest different things, but we don't really want to come out too heavy handed with mm -hmm. requiring them to do anything because we want them to do what's going to work for them and build yeah. on that. Well, I feel like yeah. this would be, you know, a wave, right? I mean, you guys are, you're, you're starting the wave and at a certain point, you know, it's how many people are signed on, but I feel like at a certain point, once you cross a threshold, it's almost, why wouldn't you sign on? Yeah, you know, I think and, that's and, right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. We're, we're, I mean, how you, this has been going on What this is the fourth year of Pari, yeah. you're wrapping up the fourth year here. So I can't believe it's only four years. <laughs> I know, right? That's a unbelievable. Lot has, a lot has happened. I mean, just yeah. the, wow. the idea of Pari and the Angel Fund has really pushed along the recovery coach movement. It's pushed a lot yeah. uh, along a lot of like the, um, the ER and stuff. Everybody's really kind of following suit on this, uh, yeah. this approach. And so it's, it's huge. I mean, I don't know. I don't know if you have one of these, but you know, as the executive executive director, I must assume you do. Is like, what's the next five years look like for Pari? I mean, do you have numbers, yeah. estimates as to your reach? Or yeah, so I think I think you're right. In some areas of the country, we certainly are at a point where it's it's almost more politically popular to do this than to not do this. Um, so That's what like, I mean, yeah, yeah. So if you're like the one police department in an, a certain area or a certain state that's not carrying Narcan, it's almost like you kind of have to do it at this point. Um, and, you know, I certainly want to recognize that law enforcement um, were doing things like this before PARI existed and before the Gloucester Angel program. And um, in a lot of cases, whether or not a police department is part of PARI, they might be doing something that's kind of 
Kari aligns, that's amazing. Um, so, you know, I think our membership doesn't fully capture the spirit of this movement. Um, and so, you know, just want to recognize that, but our hope is that this is a policing standard. So there's 17,000 police departments in the country. We work with about 500 of them. So I think in certain parts of the country, like um, Massachusetts and Michigan, and there's other parts, New England in general, we have a, a kind of good saturation. Um, and it's kind of getting to the point where you're almost more likely to be part of it than to not. But there are also entire parts of the country that have probably never heard of us and right. don't know that it's not, the culture has not changed yet to a point where this is kind of the standard. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's other kind of examples in community policing, like for example, the crisis intervention um, approach with mental health yeah. that started in, you know, the mid eighties. And now it's, you know, almost the standard where a police department needs to have a way to train their officers and, and have a way to approach that issue. So our goal and our hope is that in the next five or 10 years, that this is a standard that, mm -hmm. you know, we hope to be in every state. We hope that departments are moving away from an arrest first approach and that they utilize their local resources to have some way to create a non-arrest pathways to treatment and recovery, whether it's walking into the station or following up after overdoses or both of those, or, mm -hmm. you know, that there's some non-arrest, pre-arrest um, element that's just part of the way they think about being a police department. That that sure. the goal is for that to be a standard. So, so we, I've asked about the individual seeking help. I've asked about the family and the referring professional. Uh, now, let's say for sake of argument, we have a, a police officer from another state in the part of the country that doesn't have any of this going on. What is a police department's procedure? Um, to initiate a, a, a relationship with Pari? I mean, is this, does it have to come from the chief down? Does it have to come from, can any officer initiate some sort of a package where a Pari representative could come out and explain it to them? Are there PowerPoints, videos, applications? What's the process for a department? Yeah, so I'll kind of explain how it is now. Um, but I also wanted to say that our membership program is evolving and it's something that we're Good looking at improving because we want it to be easier to join and we also want it to be more um, kind of packaged in a way that's more accessible. Um, so right now kind of generally how it works is that someone from a police department would reach out to us. They could reach out by phone or by email or there's a form on our website powerusa.org that they could fill out to essentially submit an inquiry. Um, somebody at any rank in the police department could do that but typically you would need your chief executive to support um, joining Pari and starting an initiative. Can't just um, do it in the background. And I mean, you could, you could try. <laughs> so you guess could what? We're, we're now in Pari, <laughs> chief. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, it's certainly, there are people who reach out from all different ranks and we yep. try to provide support to whoever reaches out. Mm -hmm. um, but at some point you need leadership buy-in. So if, yeah. let's say for example, a patrol officer or a sergeant reaches out, I am probably coaching them on how to convince their command right. staff that this is something they should do. Yeah. And it, it can be challenging if, if it's kind of lower level officers that want to do this, but they don't feel like they have buy-in from their command staff. Mm -hmm. um, it's easier, I guess you could say, or faster if someone in the command staff or the chief or um, commissioner, if, if well, they, they want to do get, it. But they can yeah. get examples from, from you of sure. departments where this is working. So, I mean, there's yep. evidence, there's, there's proof. Exactly. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, what's the phrase I'm looking for? There's a, uh, yeah, like a body of evidence and thank you. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's, yeah. 
we know it works. <laughs> we know yeah. it works, and we try to make it easy to replicate. Proof of concept. It. Yeah, That's there you go. Concept. <laughs> um, yeah, so we we try to make it easy. We do try to provide examples of how this will, you know, reduce crime. Mm -hmm. It will improve community relations. It will reduce overdoses. You know, whoever we're talking to, whatever is important to them, there's a case to be made for it. Whether, mm -hmm. you know, whatever their motivation is, whether it's PR or saving lives, like we can kind of make a case for it. Um, but yeah, so typically someone reaches out and then we kind of have a conversation with them to figure out what their needs are, what their preferences are, and then what model is going to work for them. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of get them started in program development. So this could be a, a week long process. There could be a, a year long process. We could oh, provide, depending on what they've already yeah, done and depending what their on what infrastructure is like. Yeah, exactly. And, and what they want, you know, they might already know we mm -hmm. want to copy what this town did and great, go ahead and copy what they did. You can literally copy and copy and paste the forms and the policies and run with it. Or we can really spend a lot of time with you, um, training you, supporting you. You know, we've, we've worked with some departments, like I said, over several months, mm -hmm. some departments where, you know, like for example, Boston police department, we trained 13 of their officers for 60 hours on wow. how to do this. So the involvement with PARI can be a light touch or a, a really involved touch, depending on what they want. Mm -hmm. um, we also have an annual conference. We have a lot of videos and materials on our website that they can kind of watch on their own time. And mm -hmm. we're working on developing an online training curriculum as well. Um, so really it can be as much or as little involvement as they want, but we try to be there to provide them that kind of technical assistance and consulting uh, essentially to help them get started. So once they reach out, that kind of kicks off the, the process to figure out how we can help them. Mm -hmm. So, um, by the same token, is it, if there's a family member, if there's somebody out there that wants to see if their police department is involved to see if they can go and maybe get some help, is there a way to find that out? Yeah, so all of our law enforcement partners are listed on our website. Um, it's almost up to date, I will say. We try to keep it up to date. Um, but yeah, so those are available on our website. If somebody reached out, they could again do that through our website, email, they could call. We have people reach out on our Facebook page um, about kind of how do I pitch this to my police department. And essentially what we do is we provide them with a letter that they can customize and some, um, some information about how it works, what the benefits are and what the procedure is on reaching out. And they can find out what door to go through too. Like my, I, I know my police department is a part of Parry and I can go there if I need help. There's a yeah. listing of that on there too? Yeah, so okay. some of that is, a, you know, I think that this is probably an area that we could be more clear on our website. If you look on our website, you wouldn't be able to tell which department is doing which program model. You, okay. know, you, might, you might not be able I'm, to tell. Okay, I'm, I'm on the site right now and it's yeah. under The Voice, our law enforcement partners, yeah. and it shows, you know, kind of a badge for each department. Yep. Uh, and I believe if you click on the badge, it takes you directly to the department, correct? Okay. I think so, but it might just take you to a photo of the badge. It does actually, you know. Yep. It does. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I was all excited. I was yeah, like, sorry. Great. I mean, one of my visions, I will say, Paris, even though we're this national movement, we're still a pretty small grassroots organization. So there's a lot of hopes and dreams of how we could make our website better and provide better support to our partners that we are working on kind of mm -hmm. making a reality still. Um, one of the things that I hope to be able to do is actually have it be kind of an interactive map on our website where you can click a place and you can see 
what kind of program model they have and who to contact and what the hours are and and that kind of thing so my hope mm -hmm. is that that's something that we'll be able to improve on our website because that right would be now, awesome yeah right now you kind of have to contact us or contact them to figure well, out that's easy enough to do though they could just yeah. give you a call there and you know whether yeah. there's a local police department that somebody can go to right yep and we have people contact us all the time and say like you know i'm in whatever state or whatever town right and we try to connect to them to the, the nearest um program and give them well, some information about how awesome just so just so you know i mean if you're if you live in massachusetts and you're listening to this and you're looking for police department i'm currently scrolling through the list and it is heavy there's a lot it's of yeah yeah <laughs> massachusetts is awesome yeah yeah, it's yeah. And I Even you say, got it, you got a bunch in Maine too, which I'm surprised because if uh, I mean up until recently they they are the state that I've heard was it the governor that was like no no Narcan let them die I mean he said some pretty pretty crazy stuff publicly and yeah so I'm surprised that you were able to get some buy-in from the state of Maine. Yeah, I think the way that it generally works is that you have one or two police departments join PARI. And then it kind of ripples out from there. So we have a really amazing um, law enforcement leader in Scarborough, Maine, who yeah. started a walk-in program pretty early he's on. Yeah. He's, he's amazing. They've helped hundreds of people. And right. all of the neighboring departments have seen that success and essentially been inspired to join because of that. So mm -hmm. when we're thinking about how PARI has grown, you really need that champion in a state or in a region to get started so the mm -hmm. rest of law enforcement can just see how this works and to feel kind of like politically comfortable to go for it yeah. um, but when we're talking about a new region or a new area you need someone to be that first early adopter the first um, drop in the bucket Who's you need the first be? drop in the bucket <laughs> exactly so yeah. um you know like i said there are states where we don't really have a presence because we haven't identified who can be that first drop in a bucket right. yet um, well the wave is definitely in massachusetts and it sounds like it's getting yeah. getting some some footing in maine and you know, I, I just can't, I can't imagine a scenario given the current landscape of things and the epidemic and, you know, the lives lost annually and the fact that it's, you know, it's grown over time. And, and yeah. you know, I can't imagine that a collective police response wouldn't just be adopted at some point, you know, yeah. and, and that yeah. this is, it would be, as you said earlier, it would be stranger to be one of the departments that doesn't have it. Like if somebody came in and was like, we need help, they're like, oh, we're the one that doesn't. Um, you right. know, that, that, that that would become right. more awkward than being the police department that does it. And, and yeah. I guess that's, I, I imagine sure. that's the next five to 10 year plan for Pari is to yep. try to get that to be the norm, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think that this is kind of catching on and more departments are becoming aware that this is an option for them, that this is something mm -hmm. that they could implement in their communities. And so for us, it's really about how do we raise awareness about this and um, be able to provide as much support as possible as more and more police departments are looking to do this. That's kind of the challenge of how do we keep up with the demand of, you know, of the interest essentially, um, because the tide is turning on it. And I think, um, yeah, like I said, we work with almost 500 police departments. There's at least another several hundred that are doing something that maybe they haven't officially joined PARI yet, but they're doing something great in their community. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it really is a movement and it is catching on and it, it's just a matter of kind of um, keeping up with that and providing the support around that because the, cult the culture is changing and, and this is becoming the norm. Mm -hmm. Isn't that wonderful? And yeah. and yeah, thank you for everything you've done because you've been a big part of that. It's, it seems it seems like such a revolutionary idea yeah. to use the police, these first responders, as somebody to respond first to this illness. It's it's crazy, but yeah, I, I love the idea, and I mm. actually do. Um, you know, I ha I help a friend with another podcast. It's called Answering the Call. It's all first mm. responders, and what they keep talking about is what Maureen brought up was the 
the um, the compassion fatigue and the you know the idea that you're cops, you're supposed to be able to deal with this stuff. And you know, I think to your point earlier, you were saying it's another tool for them. I mean, in a situation where you know, uh, uh, habitually, you would be reaching for your gun or your handcuffs. Now there's another tool there. Yeah. And that must provide relief for the first responders, knowing there's another tool available yep. when the handcuffs must have been so frustrating. I've, yeah. I've, I couldn't imagine that if every time I was met with somebody, even if I knew they were struggling, the only tool I had available was to put them in jail. Right. In the hopes that they'd get sober in jail. And now to have that other mm -hmm. tool yep. right next to the handcuffs, it's right there. But right. to have that other tool must be so relieving for some of right. these officers. I think that's very true. I have kind of an interesting story the first time that I ever went out with the Marblehead Police Department, um, which they're not part of Perry, but they tried to start something like that. And now they're carrying Narcan. And I think eventually the next step is they'll be part of Perry. <laughs> but um, we went out the first time and there was somebody who was very well known had, who, to them who had, had an overdose. And, you know, they both decided that they needed to come with me because he was known to be, you know, not the most agreeable person. And um, we went up to the, I went up to the door. They stayed out in the, in the driveway. And I knocked on the door and told them who I was and what I was offering to do. And he came out on the uh, staff and they're standing there. And then we talked for a little bit and he started to cry. And I put my arms around him and he went to treatment. And... <laughs> And that's would turn their minds completely, I think. And this is a couple of years ago on how important this is. Yeah. And I think that the over the the I know the overdose rate is probably a quarter of what it was that first year that we started it. And the um the death rate is about a quarter of that. So there's been a tremendous shift in that mm -hmm. town, in that small town. And it's I, and I think it's because of the shift in the attitude and that there's actually right. help out there. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the communities that we work with have seen fatal overdoses go down and they've also seen, you know, crime go down and calls for exactly. service. Really. So, yeah. so it's kind of a, a long-term way, but um, those it's, it's essentially making police officers jobs easier, even though they're taking on new responsibility, they're actually saving themselves work by preventing addiction related crime and by getting people started on recovery there, they're changing their job and making it, making it easier. Um, I know I read the stats yeah. from Arlington at one point and mm. on the re reduction in the like petty crime and, and yep. crimes that would be typically typical of somebody who was stealing money to buy drugs. Yep. And um, in addition to the overdose rate and the, and the death rate yeah. going down, but um, it, there's so many benefits of this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, yeah, so, it, so it is interesting because in a way police are, you might say out of their lane or they're doing something that they weren't trained to do. But if you think about it, you know, they are also the one who's most likely to interact with the person who's struggling with a substance yes. use disorder. They're most right. likely to know who in the community is struggling. Right. And to know. not know what to do about it or yeah. not be able to do anything about it, it must be awful. Right. Well, so and for and the, why yeah. not take advantage of that point right. of contact that exactly. nobody else gets? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a lot of our programs, this is becoming, again, it's part of the culture. So like, for example... Um, in Boston, we have officers where, as part of their patrol, if they interact with somebody who's struggling, they can make a referral right there on the street. You don't need to wait till someone walks into the station. You don't need to wait till they overdose. It's just kind of the whole way that police interact with their communities is different, and they have this this new way of of assisting. Um, and like I said, you know, most people who are struggling, they're more likely to interact with police than they are with the healthcare system. Right. So, right. so why not use that point of contact, that interaction as an opportunity, just as, as part of a shift in the whole, the whole approach. 
Absolutely. Well, Thank I mean, this is, this, is, this is a topic that, you know, at some point I also want to get into, which is the first responders and maybe have somebody that's at a police department that's utilizing Perry come in and talk about yeah. their experience and, and, you know, both sides of it, where they were before and where they are today. Because, I mean, the, this podcast, Collateral Damage, is about not just everything that's happening, uh, um, like the harm reduction tool that you're talking about, but the impact it has on the community, both good and bad, that you know, if like in Arlington, if it's reducing the impact on the police department, it's reducing the impact on the ER, it's reducing the impact on the employees and taxpayers that live in the community. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's doing quite a bit, that huge ripple effect. And so, yep. you know, I mean, this is, it's always great to talk to somebody that can help our listeners and me. I learn every time we do this, uh, <laughs> yeah. learn about, you know, the really uh, innovative and you know pioneering approaches that people are taking to this uh, epidemic as it grows and the response they're taking to the loss of tens of thousands of lives a year so yeah you know, I, I applaud I your efforts and I Thank hope that you. you're able to uh, create such a wave that it's hard to say no to the idea of helping people that are struggling with addiction I don't yeah. love the way that. it should be thank you well, yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. we hope for right yeah, <laughs> yeah. All right. excellent well, thank you so much for joining us I appreciate it yeah thank you so much for having me of course, of course. It was great. And like I said, I love learning about this topic. So thank sure. you once again. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll put all her, inf all the Perry information up on the website. Yeah. It'll okay. be is, it more is it Perry or Perry? So it's funny. It's I say it wrong either no, way, but I, I keep going I, back and forth. So I'm, I'm only wrong half the time. <laughs> I say Perry, but there's a ton of like regional variations. So like everybody in Ohio says like Perry, yeah. like it, I think it's, it's it's a regional thing. There's no right or wrong way. I say I say well, Perry. I think I'm gonna I go ahead Pari. and say I'm from Boston yeah. area, so there is no R in Perry. So pa it's just Perry. <laughs> it's like P A A H. -R yeah, exactly. Yeah, Pari. basically. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if you're from around here, it's Perry, and if you're from anywhere else, it's probably Perry. Yeah. There's no Pari. wrong way to say it. That should have yeah. been our first question. So how do we pronounce this? <laughs> That's the but. tricky thing with an acronym, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Just got to keep switching it up like I do. And you're always yeah. right. Yeah. Somewhere. <laughs> well, we'll make sure all the information is up. If you're listening to this, uh, um, you can click down into more information and you'll find all the details and a direct link to the PARI website uh, <laughs> where you can get uh, information about your local police departments and all the services that are provided. So uh, once again, Ali, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank and, you, Ali. Um, I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks again. Great yeah. talking to you. Yeah. Bye now. Bye. All right. I would like to thank all of our listeners for joining us today on this episode of Collateral Damage. As always, if you'd like to find out all of the different ways that you can listen to and subscribe to our podcast, you can visit our website, which is www.cdpodcast.com. There are many different ways to listen, download, and subscribe. So we encourage you to choose the one that is most appropriate for you. And as always, we would encourage our listeners to get informed and stay connected. Thank you for joining us.